because that's true, let's take our Bibles and turn to John 10. Christ is indeed our life. He is all we have. We are nothing without him. He is our boast and him alone. John 10. We come to a text this morning in which we find Jesus in Jerusalem facing off with the religious leaders of the Jewish people. This controversy has been building throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. It's going to climax in chapters 18 and 19 of John's gospel in which they will completely reject him and pursue him, arrest him, and he will find himself on a Roman cross suffering and dying for our sins. Our text in John 10 is, however, the last public pronouncement by Jesus of his identity as the Jewish Messiah and as God in the flesh. This does not mean he avoids that topic later in the book. This is just the last time that he publicly, in front of his opponents, declares that he is indeed the Messiah. In chapter 11, we'll see him confront Martha and the loss of her brother Lazarus, and he will say very clearly there, I am the resurrection and the life. But that's just to Martha. In chapter 14, in the upper room, he'll talk to his own disciples, and he will say to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. But that's just to his disciples. This is the last time in John 10. It's a a turning point as we go into chapter 11 in which we see Jesus boldly and clearly and courageously declare that he is God in the flesh. The response we'll see in this text is once again outright rejection and irrational unbelief. Belief that is unhinged from reality. Dominated, dictated, and driven by sinful hearts. That propels at the end of our text then for Jesus to leave Jerusalem and to go to a place where he can avoid the wicked plans of the Sanhedrin until his appointed hour. Before I read the text, you'll remember from last week that the the charge from the Sanhedrin that is kind of shaping this whole controversy and, and driving the conversation is found all the way back in verse 24 when they say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? And it's, it's stronger than that. It's like, how long will you keep sucking the life out of us? Just tell us the truth. What, what really is true about you? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. We covered this last week, but it was a charge of, of rank unbelief. It meant to catch Jesus in words that they could then charge him with blasphemy and lynch him before the Romans, put him to death. They are supercharged, as it were, with hatred and rejection of Jesus. And they're, they're waiting to spring on him once he says enough that they can, in the court of public opinion, put him on a cross. Well, we saw last week, Jesus does answer them. He answers them plainly and clearly. He says to you, I have already told you. In other words, he's saying again, I am. And I have already told you this. Not only have I told you this, I've proven this to you by my works. So my words and my works have, have combined as Siamese twins to proclaim to you, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. But then he goes on, he says more than that. He says, but you do not believe me. And then he tells them why they don't believe him. You don't believe me because you're not of my sheep. And then he uses that occasion to express those assurances that were the focal point of our time together last week. The assurances that Christ's sheep can never be plucked from his hand, nor from the hand of his father. They are doubly sure in their eternal life. Now in our text, we resume with a much less encouraging reality. The unbelief of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin as they look at Jesus and hear Jesus in verse 31. So follow along as I read, starting in that verse, verse 31. 
The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that, you, that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we need your help by your spirit to understand your word. We ask that you would enlighten our minds with your truth, that you would shine the the bright light of your revelation upon our darkened hearts And help us to see Christ with fresh eyes of faith. Would you, through the understanding of the word, then move our affections to love you as we ought to love you. To move our wills to submit to you as we should submit to you. To move our faith to be an obedient faith. One that is compelled to obey you in the week to come. And Father, we pray for those among us who have maybe given lip service to Jesus as the Son of God, but have not yet received the fullness of life in Him through faith in His finished work for them. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Father, only You can do all these things we have asked. So we leave them with You and we entreat You for Your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. It's the fourth time in John's Gospel in which the Jewish leaders have come against Jesus to kill Him. Every time they have sought to kill Jesus, it has been a reaction to his words and his works. This time is no different. Those microbursts of animosity that we've seen earlier in the Gospel of John lead to this explosion in chapter 10. The anger of the leaders has reached such a level that Jesus knows by the end of it, he cannot stay in Jerusalem until it is his appointed hour. He must leave and come back, otherwise he will die prematurely because their anger is that hot and that vile. Their angry unbelief is rooted in their understanding of who Jesus is, in what they comprehend him to be saying and to be doing. And the encouragement from this text for you is that he has not been unclear. He he has not been obtuse. He has not left them wondering what did he mean by this. No, they knew what he meant when in chapter 8 he said, before Abraham was... Ego eimi, I am. They know what he was claiming and proving when he healed the man born blind in chapter 9. They understood his figure of speech in chapter 10 where he essentially said to the crowd, these shepherds that you have over you are illegitimate shepherds. They're hirelings who are trying to use you for their own profit, but I am the good shepherd. And through me you will enter into eternal abundant life. They understood what he meant. 
They understood him in verse 30 when he said, I and my Father are one. They knew he was claiming to be God. And the issue in our text is they simply cannot believe it. So they pick up stones in the Temple Mount, which in itself is an offense to so much of Jewish culture. This is how hot they were, how mad they were that Jesus, this man, was claiming to be God. In this tense encounter, I want to point out to you four realities that jump off of this page at us. And combined, they, they show us that Jesus is the Son of God. And you know that, but see that with, with fresh eyes of faith. Rejoice in that with new joy. Submit to that with new humility. Commit yourself to follow this Jesus who is the Son of God with fresh zeal. May we believe in him and love him and faithfully serve him because of our time in the word. The first reality that presses upon us from this text is the irrationality of unbelief. That's what we see in the Jewish leaders. Jesus being abundantly clear, they were not confused. They knew what he meant. They'd seen what he had done. They simply were belligerent in their unbelief. This is really important for us as followers of Jesus. That we understand the the nastiness of the human heart as it relates to the truth. Apart from grace, it is belligerent in its unbelief. It cannot be given more proof. These Pharisees could not be shown one more sign that would solve it for them, that would make it all of a sudden connect and say, oh, of course, he's the Messiah. He could not say one more wise thing that would make them say, oh, now I get it. He's the Messiah. No, the verdict was already determined in their sinful hearts of unbelief, and they were not going to be confused with the facts. I'm calling this the irrationality of unbelief based on two things presented in this text. And by irrationality, it's just a big word for saying it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. It doesn't jive with the facts. Well, how do I say that? Well, the first is that they understood Jesus' claims, and the second is that they observed Jesus' works. They heard his words, they understood it, and they saw his works. So Jesus speaks that bold truth about his oneness with the Father in verse 30. What do they do immediately after? They pick up stones. Why? Because they understood him. They knew what he meant, and they couldn't handle it. Then Jesus boldly pushes them for an answer as to why do you want to murder me? Is it, for which one of the works? The healing of the blind man? The raising of the dead son, the healing of the the leper, which one is it? Which of my many works? And it's amazing the the irony that our Lord uses in encounters like this. He says, for which of my good works? It's a strong word in the original, making the point that I've only done good among you and you know it. Which one of those are you going to throw the first stone at me for? They take the bait and in verse 32 they answer him by saying, listen, it's not for the good works you've done. Basically admitting they they know he's done good works, but it's for the blasphemy you've just pronounced. What's the nature of that blasphemy according to them? It's that he, being a man, has made himself to be God. Now on a side note here before we keep going on in the irrationality of unbelief, you must take note that there are some today who call themselves Christians who deny the full and true deity of Jesus Christ. They're belligerent in their unbelief over this matter. They formulate and encircle themselves around cults and religious movements such as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness movements. 
A few years ago, I had a Jehovah's Witness guy who just randomly called our church. I actually have found out from other pastors in the area that he does this to all the churches. He tries to get pastors to engage him in conversation about the deity of Jesus. And he puts, the, he puts the onus on the pastor on the phone saying, prove to me the deity of Jesus. And so you go to a text, you know, the, the normal text proving the deity of Jesus, and he picks them apart, he knows the Greek, and he has all his arguments, and he does all these hermeneutical gymnastics to say to you, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus was just the firstborn of God, meaning he was the first created being of God. He's the preeminent one in all of God's creation. It's heresy. It's rank heresy. And we know that, not just because we see it in our scriptures, but because we see that reaction in the scriptures of unbelieving hearts. So Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons don't just have to deal with the church. They have to deal with unbelieving Jews. Every unbelieving Jew you're going to talk to is going to say, no, Jesus was claiming to be God in the flesh. That's why we, why we rejected him, why we said he could not be our Messiah. This clarity is confirmed by these unbelieving Jews. Even in the midst of their anger, they knew what he was saying. This shows, again, the irrationality of their unbelief. They, they not only heard him and rejected him, but they'd also seen what he had done. Proven over and over again that he is who he said he is. I mean, he would be like 210 volts of kind of crazy if he claimed to be the Messiah but did nothing to prove he was the Messiah, right? There's been plenty of those in life. I had a, a family member who was a little crazy in the head from drug use who claimed to be the Messiah. I, I was not even tempted to believe that he was the Messiah because I knew that he was crazy. He did no works to prove that he was the Messiah. Jesus, if he said this with no works, is crazy. And he is blasphemous. And he deserves death by stoning but this is the irrationality of belief. He had proven over and over again that his words were true. Just taking the most recent miracle in the Gospel of John, the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. Just thinking rationally about that reality. Who but the creator of the human body could speak powerful, sovereign words over that human body and reverse the effects of the curse that has been on that human body since before birth, immediately giving sight to that human body. Who could do that? No one but God. That's the right answer, in case you weren't sure. No one but God. Only God, the Creator, could do that in that man's body. And that's exactly what the blind man said, didn't he? Do you remember that in chapter 9? The Pharisees are pressing him. They're trying to, trying to bully him into submission to denounce faith in Jesus and it only strengthens his faith. And he says, listen, he kind of blows up in verse 32 of chapter 9. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Here's his conclusion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's the rationality of the situation. It is irrational to hear Jesus and to see Jesus and to not believe in Jesus. These religious leaders are blind to that truth. They cannot be reasoned into faith. They cannot be convinced by signs and wonders. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. I want you to turn with me quickly to John 15, verses 22 to 25. John 15, just over a few pages in your copy of the scriptures. John 15, 22. 
Jesus says this to his disciples, summarizing what we're talking about. Starting in verse 22, he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You see what Jesus did? Combined his words and his works. He said they would not be guilty if they did not have my words. They would not be guilty if they did not have my works. But they hate me without a cause. He's given them every reason and every proof, and yet they do not believe. This is the irrationality of unbelief. It's the evidence, the external evidence of deep darkness in the innermost man. It's a darkness known in every human heart, a darkness that cannot be overcome by arguments and proofs. I'm all for apologetics. I'm all for making the case for Christianity, absolutely. But apologetics, just bare facts and reasons and arguments, cannot woo a sinful, darkened, unbelieving heart to Christ. There must be the work of grace evident in the power of the Spirit coming upon that heart, drawing them to Christ. It's a darkness that must be overcome by supernatural power. Beloved, this is the world's posture towards our Lord. As one commentator said, unconverted men would kill God himself if they could only get at him. The same spirit of unbelief that's driving the Sanhedrin in our text is the the spirit of unbelief that is driving the world and culture around you. And it's really easy to be apathetic about this in our Western society, which is is post-Christian but still has flavors of Christianity in how we operate. And yet over the last several years, we've seen explosions of of unbelief and vile wickedness in society as seen just just as one example what we saw this last week in the leaking of the documents of the supreme court saying they're going to overturn roe v wade have you watched any of the videos of the pro-abortionists the pro-murderists who have claimed the the human right to murder babies in the womb that's some kind of evil That's some kind of of demonic, straight from the pit of hell kind of evil. And that's the posture of the heart. It doesn't always come out that clearly, but that is the posture of the human heart relating to the truths of Christ. This is how Jesus applies this in John 15 when he says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. In other words, brother and sister, you might must not be surprised when they come after you, when they oppose you, when they revile you, when they make your job harder because they know of your stance on the truth, when they reject you from family gatherings because they know you're committed to Christ. On down the list, you fill in the blank, you understand. Don't be surprised. Let me press this further, though. We must also not be shocked nor apathetic about the attempts of this world to infiltrate our hearts and our minds to sow these seeds of rejection of truth and of God. It's very easy for us as Christians to to be in the world and before we know it, to be of the world. To imbibe in, in everything the world has that 
they're putting out in the name of, of entertainment and the name of, of just being part of this culture. Let me caution you from the, the belligerent and irrational unbelief we see in John 10 to be on guard. This is why John will say in his first epistle, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. You cannot cozy up to the world. I, I fear, I, I have done this and I fear this is true for too many of us. We welcome the world into our lives like a cute little poodle puppy and, and let it cozy up to us and, and lie next to us and we, we pet it and we get to know it and we enjoy it and we've misunderstood its reality, its nature. It's not a, a poodle, it's a ravenous wolf waiting for the moment to devour us when we least expect it. Beloved, we cannot love the world and love God at the same time. We cannot be lulled to sleep by our culture, refusing to be on guard. So teenager, that music you listen to and those videos you watch seem harmless and fun, and maybe many of them are. But just know that they're slowly winning your affections. They're slowly shaping your mind, how you think about and view life in this world. Parents, those movies you, you let your children partake of that our world has produced seem in and of themselves harmless and entertaining enough, but just know that behind so many of them, which has become glaringly obvious in the latest Disney film, which we can talk about another time, but behind so many of them is a desire that is from the pit of hell, seeking entrance into your kids' hearts and minds to shape them and to groom them to think like they think and to love what they love. Man or woman, as you pick up that next novel or turn on that next podcast, just know that you are subtly allowing that information to press upon your soul, how you should think and feel and Live. Now, you know I'm not saying let's go 1980s Amish on this thing. Let's just all go back, get rid of it all, lose the cell phones, the TVs, the cars, horse and buggy it. Let's do that, right? But there has never been a time in the history of the church where we have not been under threat like this. There's never been a time when we've been able to be apathetic and careless and carefree and just live life and let live and enjoy the imbibing realities of culture. We've always, as a church, from day one, had to wade through the onslaught of those who hate God and reject His truth. As all I'm saying to you from John 10 is be on guard. Shore up the walls and secure the gates of your life. Take stock of what you're giving entrance to. What doors have you opened up? What influences are having in impact upon your mind and your heart and your loves and your will. Be aware and be alert. This irrationality of belief is conquered by the truthfulness of Jesus, verses 32 to 38. As we see the irrational, irrationality of unbelief around us, we should follow the example of Jesus that we see laid for us in these verses. The culture was not willing to let Jesus just be were they? See, when you speak this kind of truth, this clearly, that must be true, and if it's not true, then you should be fully rejected. The culture will come after you. 
This is what was happening with Jesus. And it was trying to destroy him. And so he turned and spoke the truth to them. Now, there's times to, to turn and walk away. He did that in John 8, remember? When in the temple another time, they picked up stones to stone him. And, and he knew in his eternal wisdom, his infinite wisdom, that he needed to leave. And he left the temple and went out and healed the blind man. Poked him in the eye on the way out. But here in chapter 10, he, he turns and engages them. And this is some kind of courage from our Lord. I pointed this out to you again and again and again because we as Christians struggle with courage. I struggle with courage to speak the truth to those who don't believe it. There's nothing more inflaming to my courage than to see it in my Lord. To see Jesus stare down men who are holding stones to crush his skull with. He says to them, doesn't your scripture say quotes the word of God to them and argues with them rationally. Tries to get them to see that there's a, an explanation for this that they have not yet considered. I want you to see the truthfulness of our Lord in this encounter. This is the, the second reality dominating these verses. Our Lord has not been deceptive in any way. His words have interpreted his works and his works have corroborated his words. So his works have been his audible sermons, his works have been his visible sermons. And they have said the exact same thing about Jesus. And look at verse 32, they, they pick up stones to crush in his skull and he answers them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? Notice that he doesn't back down one inch, he doesn't reframe the conversation to try to relieve the tensions. Rather, he challenges them by dissecting their unbelief one piece at a time. He's trying to expose to them their own irrationality. He says to them, you've rejected my clear testimony of oneness with the Father. How does that jive with your understanding of my works? So you don't like what I said in verse 30? How does that fit with what I did in chapter 9? Is your unbelief justified? They respond by pointing again to his words, knowing they've been had by Jesus. And they say that by your words, you've made yourself to be God. And Jesus responds to that charge by pointing them to their own scriptures to prove to them that he has every right to be called the Son of God. Now, our, our Mormon and Jehovah Witness friends are going to take this statement combined with what we already saw, and they're going to say Jesus is, is minimizing his personhood here. That he isn't one with the Father in verse 30 like he said. That he is just like the sons of God of Psalm 82. That's not at all what he's saying. And you can follow his logic as he explains it. And we'll work through that in a minute. What he's saying is your own scriptures give me the right to use the word Elohim and apply it to myself. So your argument of blasphemy, your charge of blasphemy holds no water. Before we get to that, you must note the truthfulness of Jesus. Beloved, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his words, and I mean every word. His word in casual conversation, his word as he talked to the, the crowd on the beach, his word on the hillside in the Sermon on the Mount, his, his words as he traveled to Jerusalem with his disciples, and his words under the, the hottest of situations in the vilest of opposition. All of those words and all of his works are in 
concert. They play on the same team. They all make known the same glorious truth that Jesus is indeed God, very God. That he is one with the Father and sent from the Father and sanctified by the Father, meaning set apart by the Father to do the works of the Father and the will of the Father. They all say and scream, he is who he says he is. Notice how Jesus does not correct their their understanding of what he has said. So when they charge him with blasphemy, saying you claim to be God, being a man, he doesn't say, no, 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 I've never said that I'm God. I don't know where you got that idea from. I'm just the first one made in God's creation. I'm just the preeminent one among you, but I'm, I'm under God. I'm not one with him. I don't know where you got that idea. He doesn't say that, does he? Because they're right. He has said, I am God. They get it. They understand it completely and truly. What he corrects is their unbelief. He points them to Psalm 82. He quotes it to prove that their title of God could be used to speak of judges in the Old Testament. And if it's true there, then it can be true of him. He's arguing from the lesser of Psalm 82 to the greater of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, he's saying that the the words about himself are in line with the words of their scriptures, the Old Testament itself. Then again, he points to his works in verses 37 to 38, and he basically says, don't take my words for it. Don't take my word for it. Look at my works and let them prove it to you. Do you remember when John the Baptist was in prison awaiting what he did not know, but we do know his own beheading by Herod? Remember as he was waiting in prison and there's controversy over what was he thinking? What was going on in John that he had to send messengers to Jesus? But for our purposes, he sends messengers to Jesus. And you remember what they went to ask? Are you the one coming into the world or should we look for another? John the Baptist wants us to ask you this. Remember what Jesus said? Yeah, that's me. No, he didn't say that. What does he say? Go and tell John what you hear and see. What you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news. Preach to them. Tell them what you've, tell John what you've heard and seen. That's what he's saying in our text to these Pharisees. I'm not doing the works of my father. If, if I'm not, then don't believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe what I've said to you so far, you don't believe in me, let the works convince you. Know that the, the Father in heaven has sent me. He says that you may know and understand. He uses the same word twice in two different tenses. One in the future tense, one in the present tense. He wants the works to future convince them that he was the Messiah, but then to keep, keep convincing them. This is instructive for your faith. Where you struggle to continue to persevere in faith in Jesus. The answer is not found in you. It's not found in mustering up more of your own faith. It's not found in in being a better believer, a better Christian. The answer is found in in Jesus, that you may know and keep knowing, keep believing, keep understanding. So look to his words and his works. This is the crossroads of decision for these Jewish leaders, isn't it? 
The evidence is plain and obvious. If Perry Mason were on the scene, he couldn't make a better case. I mean, there's just no way around this argument. It is airtight. There's no other viable explanation for the works of Jesus than that he has been sent by the Father and is otherworldly, that he himself is supernatural, performing supernatural works. If that's true, then listen, these unbelievers are pinched between the vice grips that has two points. One is the works of Jesus and one is the words of Jesus. And what Jesus does in this argument is he brings them together around their soul. And he is cranking them in this moment, pinching them with the reality of his works and his words. Pressing them to the point of decision. And they will either submit in faith or they will bolster in unbelief. Well, you know the answer. They bolster in unbelief. They reject Jesus and lash out at him and seek to arrest him again. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you're hearing of this Jesus again for maybe the hundredth time. I don't know how often you've heard of him. Maybe it's one of your first times. The proof of Jesus' words and his works press upon your soul. This is the point of decision for you. Is he who he said he is or is he not? If he is, then Look to him and live. He offers to you as the good shepherd of his sheep eternal life in him. He also predicts and guarantees future judgment for those who reject and turn from him. This is the truthfulness of Jesus. See also the trustworthiness of scripture. It's all built upon this, this trustworthiness of scripture. This is the third emphasis that I want to show you this morning from this text. Jesus has been true in all of his testimony about himself. He's proven that in all of his works and that is always tied throughout Scripture to the testimony of Scripture themselves. Meaning, Jesus is never out of step with the revelation of Scripture. Both pre, current, and future revelation as it related to Christ. Everything he said is in lockstep with the revelation of his Father through Scripture. He is its perfect fulfillment. What he's proving is that reality to them in verses 34 to 36. So let me rehearse it again for you. They're saying to him, you're blaspheming because you're claiming to be God when you're just a man. So what he does is he quotes a fairly obscure, unknown, out-of-the-way text in Psalm 82. You didn't know where that was, did you? I'm guessing those Pharisees didn't know where it was either. But Jesus, in his um, unbelievable, amazing grasp of Scripture under the threat of death, can scan the Bible in that moment and pull out one phrase and make an argument. Bow and worship this Jesus. You cannot do that. Unbelievable, our Lord. He takes this obscure passage from Psalm 82, and he says to them, in Psalm 82, humans were called Elohim, called gods. He quotes that to them, and he says to them, if judges in the Old Testament were called gods, then certainly the one set apart by and sent from the Father can be called Son of God. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Psalm 82, we won't take the time to turn or read it, but you must know it's Yahweh appearing on the scene in Psalm 82, and he's judging the judges of Israel. He comes as the judge of the judges. And he sets up his court in the middle of all of the judges and he says to them, you are judging unjustly and you are showing partiality. And the psalm calls them out by 
pointing out to them that they will give account to the great judge of heaven, which is the most sobering, terrifying reality apart from grace for any role God's given you in the economy of this world. Parent, child, father, mother, boss, employee, elder, church member, you will appear before your great God and give an account for that. He says this of these judges and calls them to that accounting in Psalm 82. At the climax of the psalm in verses 6 and 7, these judges are addressed directly when it says, I said to you, you are God's Elohim, son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. You see, they thought that they had been given some special assignment by God, had been given the word of God, and therefore they were immune to the judgment of God. God, through the psalmist, says, no, your day of reckoning is coming, and you will fall just like the sons of men. What Jesus is saying in John 10 is that if the psalmist can use the word God's to address human judges, then certainly it should be used for the one sent directly from God. Think of it this way. These judges were tasked with representing God and carrying out his will, right? Isn't that the job of an Old Testament judge? Represent God in Israel and rule according to my will, my word, right? That's what they're to do. Very clear. So they're vice regents of God given his authority for a time to accomplish his purposes. They were failing at that and they were therefore to be judged because of it. But what that lays before us is that there's a close connection between human judges put in place by God and the will of God getting done on earth. Jesus takes that and says, this was partially true of them, but it's perfectly and fully true of me. What they did incompletely and unjustly, I do perfectly, fully, and truly. I am God's vice regent sent by him to carry out his will on earth. Therefore, I should be called the Son of God. I am one with the Father sent by him. Now the bigger point, if you got lost in all the details, wake back up. The bigger point is, the scriptures are trustworthy. Jesus just built that argument on one word in one obscure verse of one psalm you haven't read for months. And he claims from that one word that there is no problem in calling him the son of God. He had total trust in every word of Scripture. J.C. Ryle says that if you don't do this, you're plunged into a sea of uncertainties. Friend, it is not enough to just say the Scriptures contain the Word of God. That somewhere in them you can find the truth of God. It is not enough to say that the Scriptures are inerrant in their thoughts. That they communicate the right ideas of God. No, this is like a legal document, a will and a testament. We indeed call it Old Testament and New Testament. Court cases are argued before the Supreme Court on phrases of words and tenses of words because every word matters in a legal document, right? 
Friend, every word matters in this document. God said it. He breathed it out through human authors. He wrote it down. He preserved it for you and I to consume. And it is entirely, completely, and fully worthy of our trust. Stake your soul upon it. Fourth thing that jumps out of this, out of this text at us is the effect of a faithful witness. The effect of a faithful witness. Jesus' argument, once again, produces rejection in their hearts. They seek to arrest him in verse 39. Jesus, again, escapes their hands. I don't know how. We don't need to know how. It, it is in some way, I'm sure, supernatural. How you escape from an angry Jewish mob on their own grounds, I don't know, but he does. As he does, he leaves and goes to Bethany beyond the Jordan. You know, he could have gone to another Bethany. It was about a mile away. He's going to come back there in chapter 11. His good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, lived there. I am sure they would have given him the run of the house and helped him find some cave in the hills of Judah to hide out in if he needed to. He, he could have had safekeeping there, but he, he went somewhere else. He went to another Bethany. He went to a, a Bethany beyond Jordan, vacates the region of Jerusalem, and, and heads for a distant location out in the wilderness. And why is this important? Well, John already told us in John 1 that Johnny B., John the Baptist, told to us by Johnny A., John the Apostle, that Johnny B. was out baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan in John 1. The text tells us in John 10 that Jesus went to that place and stayed there until he returns in chapter 11 to raise Lazarus from the grave. It's about three months after what we see happening in chapter 10. Friend, you need to know what's happening here. He, he's not just getting out of the pressure cooker of Jerusalem. We've already seen he can avoid dying. He's got that figured out. He could be in Jerusalem and not die until his appointed hour. He, no one is going to take his life before he laid it down. They couldn't. He's not just getting away from the pressure. He's rather going to a place with deep significance. What's that significance? Well, he's identifying himself with John the Baptist once again. He started his ministry there, and he's going to finish his ministry there. And he's saying by his presence in Bethany, I am the one that John came out here preaching about. I am the one he was preparing the way for. Verse 41 tells us that many came out to Jesus there. And what happens? Are they antagonistic toward Jesus? Do they reject him? Are they belligerent in their unbelief like they were in Jerusalem? No, instead, John tells us they remembered John the Baptist preaching and they say, this man must be the one that John told us about. Though John does not do any sign, never did a sign for us, he told us faithfully about this one coming and here we see him and we hear him and he must be the one. Notice how that gets said by John, the apostle. Everything John said to us about him was true. Friend, this must be one of the most encouraging verses in John 10, and there's a lot of them. Faithful servants of the word who I have the privilege to preach to week in and week out. You who have handled the truths of Jesus day after day in your home, week after week in your Sunday school class, day after day in your classroom, whether homeschool or Christian school, 
You have repeatedly and regularly and fervently pointed your students and your kids to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have said, this is he of whom you must believe if you will have eternal life. John did this in the the wilderness in obscurity. Yes, he was wildly popular. Yes, many came out to him, but he, he died a martyr's death. His head chopped off in the agony of rejection, not knowing how it all turned out. Your sermons that are true about Jesus never die. They go on. They continue to have effect. John is long gone. But his words that were true about Jesus live on in the hearts and the minds of those who heard him preach. And those elites in Jerusalem who rejected Jesus had every man-centered, man-dependent reason to not believe, who saw Jesus as a threat to their power, are outwitted and outsmarted by these obscure, dwelling on the edge of the wilderness, unknown people whom you will only meet in eternity, never see their names written in Scripture, who heard John, saw Jesus, heard Jesus and said, He is the one. And they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. John says of himself, I'm only a voice calling out in the wilderness. I am not the Messiah. I'm not one of the great prophets. I am only a voice calling out in the wilderness. He did no miraculous work, but he was faithful to proclaim the truth about the coming Messiah. His message was matched by his life, and now his message has proven true over time. He planted the seed, and now the Messiah reaps the harvest of souls. And he has as the banner over his life this legacy. Everything he told us about Jesus is true. Friend, I don't care what else you accomplish in life. I don't care what other legacy people will remember you for. May it be said at your funeral, everything he or she said to me about Jesus is true. He knew Christ. She knew Christ. And they pointed me to him. Is that what your kids and grandkids will say many years after you have left this earth and joined our Lord in heaven? If it is, you must know it's well worth all the effort, even if you don't see in this lifetime its effect. Alistair Begg, as he was preaching on this text, shared this illustration that was too good to not share with you. David Livingston, the great pioneer missionary to Africa, the Scottish missionary, died in Africa. About a year later, his body was finally brought to to England. And though a pauper, the only pauper buried in Westminster Abbey, he was entombed there. And as he was being progressed through the city to Westminster Abbey, there was a man quite disheveled and unkempt, a vagrant of society, standing alongside the Thames at complete and total attention as he watched the funeral procession, sobbing in tears, weeping as he stood at attention, and uttering under his breath, you were right, Davy, you were right. Another man who was also standing at attention next to him 
bore with this man for a while, but finally couldn't take it anymore. I was wondering what was going on with this poor man. What's wrong with him? And so he gauged, engaged him and said, Sir, what's, what's wrong? Why are you weeping? This man collected himself and started to express to him that, well, Davy and I grew up in the same town. We went to the, the same church and attended the same Sunday school. As we attended the same Sunday school, we heard week after week the truth about Jesus and we came one Sunday and our teacher pressed upon us the point of decision about the Son of God. He said, you've heard about Jesus, but you must believe in Jesus. You must submit in faith to Him and all His claims. Is He who He said He was? And David rose up and said, yes, He is. And I turned and rejected and said, no, He isn't. And my life has been a mess ever since. And you were right, Davy. You were right. Friend, it does not matter if you have a, a Bible sitting next to your bed. It does not matter if you've been at church every time we've had the doors opened. It does not matter if you've been in the best Sunday school classes that Newton Bible Church has to offer. It does not matter how many times you've heard the truths about Jesus. What matters is if you have been pressed to this point of decision, called by his grace to turn from your sinful rebellion of Jesus and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be gloriously rescued. May that be true of you today if it has not yet been. If that is already true of you, go and do as Davy did. Live a life of faithful, zealous service to our king. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for the privilege of studying John 10. Help us to grow in our understanding of submission to and love for you through this text. Having seen the word, would you help us, Lord, not to be those who walk away and forget what we've heard and seen? Would you, by your grace, make us doers of this word? Make us bold and courageous like our Lord. Make us alert and watchful against the world. Make us men and women faithful like John the Baptist to speak the truth about Jesus no matter the cost and use us however you so choose to faithfully draw others to yourself. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us and your son. In his name we pray, amen.